With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. They are Sports Illustrated. It's amazing. This incredible body of work. I really appreciate the integrity. Everything you do is well done. You guys do a great job. We love it. What can we say? He's Chris Maddox. He's employed by Sports Illustrated. The announcer's got it in for me. There you go. This is the Crossover NBA Podcast. You have a problem with it? Build a team that can beat them. Hosted by the one and only. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Chris Mannix. So Paul Westhead is a familiar name in NBA circles. He spent parts of six seasons as an NBA head coach, another half a dozen or so as an assistant. Spent many years in the college ranks. And is the only coach in history with an NBA and a WNBA championship. He is also the author of of the new book called The Speed Game, and he joins me now on the podcast. Paul, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. Uh, so I guess start with me at the basketball beginning. How does a coach at LaSalle wind up with the Los Angeles Lakers? Yeah, well, uh, it goes back to my, you know, uh, St. Joe's college background. Uh, you know, I played for Jack Ramsey uh, and also – playing for Ramsey was Jack McKinney, who, uh, while I was a player, was an assistant with with Ramsey. So then Jack McKinney gets the job as the new Lakers coach, and he calls me and says, I'd like you to come and be with me. Took me about seven seconds to say, uh, let me think it over. Yes, I'm coming. <laughs> and uh, back then – uh, head coaches in the NBA only had one assistant. So it was, you know, uh, was kind of an honor to, for McKinney to invite me, and I was happy to oblige. Well, it, it seems almost impossible to believe a day when there was only one assistant. Now I think there's one assistant per player, right? Exactly. There's, a, there's six on the bench and six behind the curtain and uh, <laughs> six that, that only do workouts. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, – it's a changing times there. So, I mean, for, for people that can't recall a time like that, like, what are your responsibilities as an assistant coach in those days? Well, you did a little bit of everything. Um, and I have to add to this, uh, you and the head coach did about 80% of the scouting. So, uh, as you now know, there's a, a scouting division on NBA teams that probably is 10-plus guys with a director, et cetera. Back then, uh, there would be a part-time guy that would fill in some games. So, for example, I would coach a, a practice with J Jack McKinney on a Tuesday at noon and leave that afternoon to fly to Oakland to see – 
the Warriors play that night and then fly back uh, on a midnight flight back to L.A. and be at practice the next day at 10 a.m. So, you know, it was kind of a whirlwind thing. And you never thought anything of it. I mean, that was expected of you, and we did it. So, you, I mean, you were an assistant for what? How many games were you officially an assistant coach? Yeah, uh, Jack uh, had his serious bicycle injury. We were about 10 games into the season. Mm-hmm. So, so about, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, 10 games into your first season as an NBA coach and you're subsequently being asked to take over the Los Angeles Lakers. What was that moment like? Well, it, it wasn't much of a decision because uh, Jack was injured – on like a uh, Thursday and his wife found him as an unknown bicyclist Thursday evening. Uh, We went to the hospital on Friday morning. I had to go to a shoot around practice because we were playing that night. So it was me, the players and the trainer. Mm. So I think they made a quick vote and said, let's, let's let Westhead take this team rather than. <laughs> so it wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, uh, discussion. And I do remember Jerry Buss seeing me later that day saying, okay, uh, you're in charge of the team and, you know, we'll, we'll stay in touch with you as the days go by. Because the real concern at that moment was uh, for Jack McKinney. He was in very serious condition. So show of hands, you know, for <laughs> who's, who's taking over. Yeah, and then after the game, come back and see us. Uh, we may have made a change by then. <laughs> and I, and the irony, and I and I, I talk about this in the book. Uh, that first game was kind of a blur, and we're losing with about 15 seconds to go. And Jamal Wilkes does a classic, you know, jump shot that looks like it's never going to go in. I mean, I don't know if you remember Jamal. Mm. Great scorer, but he had an awful shot. It kind of rolled off his 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 head. And it went in, and we won the game. So uh, I probably would have been dismissed uh, after that game had we not won. <laughs> How did you feel early on, not only coaching a young Magic Johnson, but you know Kareem, who was well established at that point? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, there was it was a mixed bag with the Lakers. Uh, Kareem and I, through training camp in the first ten games, had a kind of a friendship that was evolving uh and the friendship was i didn't tell him too much about basketball i sometimes would talk to him about a a novel that i had read uh or a poem but not like hey i think you ought to dip your shoulder you know i i I was i was too smart to advise him and he was uh, gracious enough to accept my non uh, advice so we were friends so that part got off well uh, Magic, he was just a young fellow finding his way. So he was kind of easy to handle. I mean, he just wanted to play, you know, mm-hmm. just get me out there. Let me play. Uh, let's not have a lot of discussion. So he kind of fit, even though he's a rookie, fit like Kareem. They just were players. There were other players, uh, you know, I had issues with uh, Spencer Haywood, for example, uh, because uh, he was traded to us in had an agreement apparently with Jack McKinney to be a starter mm. and Jack McKinney never told me of that agreement. And therefore I said to Spencer, well, that might be his deal, but it's not my deal. Uh, mm. You know, I'm going to play who I think can help us win. So uh, some of the veterans tried to squeeze me, I think. How'd you deal with that? Yeah. Well, the good news is I had, you know, nine years of head coaching experience at LaSalle College. Uh, so, I mean, I knew the game. I knew players. I, I didn't know the pro player uh, th- that eventually caught me, but I knew the interaction of players. You know, basically, they want to they want to play. They want to play uh, minutes, and if they do well, they expect more minutes. So, I kind of, you know, followed that pattern. You know, if you played well, I played you more. So, uh, most of them accepted that uh, right from the get-go. You said that eventually caught you. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is I thought I was an experienced coach, and, and if there was a coaching decision on the court uh, or who to play or who not to play, I thought I was okay. You know, I had good background. But I didn't know anything about uh, agents. 
I didn't know anything about contracts. I didn't know, for example, that I t- would say to a player, you know, if you play better defense, you could really help our team and, and it would help you. And then he comes back two days later and says, well, coach, I talked to my agent. My agent says I need to score more points. <laughs> so uh, there's a, you know, I didn't know that world. And, and I didn't realize at that time that the agent is really important. You know, I just kind of thought it was like the next door neighbor. You know, when a college, uh, you know, my, my neighbor says I should shoot more. Yeah, well, shut up and, and don't worry about your neighbor. But the agent is telling him, I can make more money for you if you listen to me and not to him. So there is a conflict there. That's interesting because I, I, it, that's definitely true now as, as well, you know, where the agent has a lot of juice and has a lot of influence over the player. Is it? Yeah, you know, you we'll, we'll get into this, but you did coach in the NBA into the early to mid two thousands. Did you feel like the did that evolve at all? Did you feel like the agent had more influence back then, or as where we are right now? Yeah, I. Well, let me say it in this way: I think it had greater impact on me back then because I was totally naive to that world. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I didn't, I'm talking to you like I know what's going on, but, but <laughs> back then I didn't. As I began to coach more teams, like when I had the Denver Nuggets, you know, 10 years later, uh, I could handle it better. I, I, you know, I wasn't, sometimes you still can't win that battle. I mean, the team wants to do one thing and you want to do something else. Uh, you know, uh, even, uh, even with the Orlando Magic, uh, I can remember uh, in the draft, uh, we wanted player X and the team wanted Dwight Howard because he, you know, was a young high school phenom and they could sell him. Mm-hmm. So he, that, that world still goes on. I mean, I think people don't realize that there is a, there is a significant difference between the head coach and the coaching staff and the general manager and the general manager staff, they, they, they say they want to win, and they do, but they see the way to winning going different directions. And I will say to you that the coach probably wants to draft somebody who he thinks can help him immediately, like in the first half of the season and, and that season. The general manager might say, well, you know, the season's a throwaway anyway, so hell, we're not going anywhere, so we should, you know, do this and that, and we'll be better three years from now. Well, guess what? I'm not going to be there three years from now. <laughs> I'm going to be gone. So that kind of stuff I, I, I think I got better at, but ultimately you don't win those battles sometimes with management. Okay. Can you – Recall any specifics of a battle that you lost that you look back on now and you can appreciate more? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, you know, I and in some of my NBA jobs, like when I coached the Chicago Bulls, you, mm. you know, you, you get who you're dealt with and you, you come in late. I came in late. The draft was like the day after I signed my deal. Uh, at that time, uh, we drafted Quentin Daly who, you know, and, and then I coached him for a year. I, have, I had no issue with Quentin Daly as a player. He was, he was really a talented young man. Uh, you know, he had social issues. He had, a, you know, a, a, a law case uh, against him that had to be resolved. And, and there were, unfortunately, there were cities that, you know, made fun of him and called him a criminal and, and all that kind of stuff. I, was hard to go through but so he wasn't my pick but he worked out good I mean he was my best player you know it took me about two weeks to say all right so the end of the game we're going to get the ball to Q and uh, he he was my Michael Jordan he was my you know uh, Tracy McGrady when I was in uh, Orlando so uh, sometimes it works out okay for you <laughs> you were you got to Chicago a couple of years too early there Paul yes just just a couple Yes, I'd still be there, maybe. <laughs> it's funny how <laughs> and, life works out. Yeah, it is. And, and my wife keeps reminding me about, you know, teams and uh, how, how it could have turned. She keeps saying to me, one more championship and we'd have a house with a view. 
<laughs> Should say I wrote a book. Come on, that's yeah, that's so next. So I wrote a book. See how that helps us, dear. <laughs> the Nikki Glazer podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glazer podcast. I said, "Tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting." Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glazer podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glazer podcast to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, you are an advocate of playing fast, obviously. Um, That has become en vogue in today's NBA. I mean, Mike D'Antoni introduced his seven seconds or less offense. I mean, you have talked about this. You were kind of five seconds or less in a way in your day. Um, Did you feel looking back that, you know, you were ahead of your time that, you know, that, that getting, I mean, getting the buy-in from players must have been a lot more difficult then than it is right now. Well, you know, Chris, uh, I don't want to take too much credit for the game today because to be honest, my fast break system is m- much faster than what I'm seeing today. So to say, you know, the, the game is playing quickly and, and you did it many years ago, they're not playing like me. So I, I don't want to take any credit. Uh, uh, I played much faster. If, I, if my team had 100 offensive possessions, we wanted to shoot the ball 100 times within five seconds. That doesn't go on today. The teams are much more methodical, you know, much more controlled. Uh, Mike D'Antoni, you make a good allusion. He was a terrific fast break coach in Phoenix. And by coincidence, I was there with the Phoenix Mercury at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I had the women, he had the men. Uh, he'd watch me at practice and games. I would do the same with him. Uh, I have nothing but high praise for Mike D'Antoni. But I will say to you, the Mike D'Antoni 
of the last five or six years in Houston, for example, that's not the fast break Mike D'Antoni that I know mm-hmm. that I associated with, you know, so the, the running game, as I devised it, you know, shoot whatever you can get a layup or a jump shot in five seconds, uh, that went away and it went away for a lot of reasons. Uh, players don't like it. it it's too hard. Mm-hmm. You, they don't want to play like that. So even if they can get advantage from the defense because they're getting down ahead of the defense, I, I often marvel how people don't realize this. Why would you want to have an offense that you can get good shots before the defense gets set? But why wouldn't everybody want to do that? Mm-hmm. And the answer is players don't want to do it because they have to run too hard. Mm-hmm. So that's it in a nutshell. Well, when you're ex- trying to explain that to let's just say the lakers for example like how does it how are they receiving it well the lakers is an interesting sample because when i took over the team it was really jack mckinney's system right uh, which he got from ramsey at portland and the trailblazers had won the championship with this kind of uh very sharing type of offense so i just kind of followed the cue and and stayed on target with them uh, the second and into my third years, when I tried to deploy my fast break, I tried to adjust my system to what they were doing. And to be honest, uh, I, I experienced, uh, you know, great, uh, resistance. You got fired uh, for it, Paul. Yeah, I got fired, <laughs> got for, fired yeah, thank, for it. Thanks, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. You got to the bottom line, Chris. Yeah. You I mean, got but, fired for it. I mean, but even in training camp, they, they just, uh, you know, uh, we had won. We, you know, we, we had a championship on our backs. We, you know, we had a terrific second year with Magic being out for most of the year with knee surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was the best team I ever coached in the NBA my second year. And then in the third year, I said, we're going to really rev up the running. And they just resisted. The, mm-hmm. uh, the guards like Magic and Norm Nixon didn't want to run that fast. Uh, Magic really re- wasn't back yet from his knee. Uh, people forget that, but I didn't. That really, that really hurt our team early on. Uh, Kareem uh, was very compliant, but he was not a fast break guy. I mean, uh, people talk about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. If he was 20 years old today, what would he be in this you know open running game? Uh, I think a smart coach would take their time and throw him the ball in the low post. Uh, you, you don't want Kareem shooting 25-foot jump shots just because <laughs> it's in vogue. Uh, so it was a hard one. And, and, and to be honest, I probably was stubborn. And I said, well, I know that this is a good system and it will work and we can win more games. Uh, I think it was Scott Osler uh, who covered our games then. And he said, Paul, why – did you change when Jerry Buss gave you a good contract, said you were a great coach, you won a championship? Why change, Paul? Yeah. And I said, yes, Scott, <laughs> why change? Uh, and it was a good question, and I, and I still am trying to figure out the answer. My wife is saying to me, why did you change? <laughs> you got fired 14 times by doing this crazy stuff. But the few times that it worked, it was worth it, Chris. But but back to the Lakers. Uh, Your I, wife I, just wanted a house, Paul. You know that. She, I mean, we're still stuck on the house. She wants a better house. Yeah, she, she still wants the, the better house. There you go. <laughs> Sorry, continue. You said back you said with the Lakers. Yeah, but I mean, back with the Lakers, I, I, I just uh, probably miscalculated how much they wanted to run. And I thought I could show them a better way. And I'll just give you an example. Uh, uh, At the end of our first practice in Palm Springs in training camp, we had a good like hour and a half practice, a lot of fast breaks. And I thought I'd really not rub it in, but make it better. I said, okay, now we're going to run some lines, guys. So, you know, a lot of college and high school coaches run lines at the end of practice to kind of get you in better shape. So we ran the line, so up, back, up, back, up, back, about half a dozen or ten times. And the players are walking into the locker room, and I'm walking away from them, and Kareem comes over, puts his arm around me, and says, Paul, I don't run lines. 
<laughs> and he walked away. So the good news is he was considerate enough to tell me it, it, the, the ultimate, it was kind of like a threat. If you do it again, I'm leaving. <laughs> and, and, he, and I think he liked me enough to say, I think you're smart enough not to do it anymore. And I was smart enough. We never ran lines again. But I, I didn't get the whole message. He, he probably should have said, and let's slow down a little bit. And I the think, other thing about, yeah, go ahead, Paul, I was going to say, the other thing about Kareem was kind of interesting. Uh, we had a good relationship, but he never called me coach. He always called me Paul. I think he only called John Wooden coach. Uh, so he was making that clear separation. You're, you're just another guy. <laughs> You can almost, almost respect that. Like there's one coach, everybody yeah. else is somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. And at least that I, coach I okay is a great. Yeah, I, I was okay with that. Yeah, Kareem was fine. I, I think there are some people that might listen to this and hear you say, you know, the Lakers didn't want to run as much and be like, you know, what are you talking about? It's the Lakers, the Showtime Lakers. All he did was run in those days. What's the difference? Yeah, well, they didn't want to run – as fast and as many times as I wanted them to run. I think uh, after I was fired, I think Pat Riley came in and kind of kept the running system going and tempered it, though. You know, I think he, he kind of uh, handled it and handled the players better than I was doing. So I give Pat that, that credit. I think he still was doing much of my system, but he – kind of tweaked it and and took it more under control and the players I think responded to that so uh, but you don't see that kind of running going on now I mean mm. uh, I mean I, I saw most of the Lakers in the in the bubble in the finals uh, Anthony Davis sometimes Miami was scoring Davis would get out and run and they'd throw a lead lob and he'd dunk the ball ahead of the defense I mean that's a good fast break mm. but I mean the next time down they'd walk it down and Davis would shoot a 35 footer you know mm. so it wasn't fast break after fast break after fast break. See, that's really the key of what I tried to do. That's the crooks of it. I mean, anybody can fast break and steal the ball and you fast break. I mean, it looks okay. But nobody except me wanted to run it every possession. Push it, push it, push it. If you shot in five seconds, the next one, if you could shoot in four, I'd be happier. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's the relentless fast break that makes it work and blows it up if it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. so you were, that, that, you were. I mean, Riley was a broadcaster, right? Before yeah, he joined right. you. So you right. effectively gave Riley his first shot. Yes, I did. Uh, he was with Chick Hearn. He was Chick Hearn's color man. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the first maybe 10, 12 days, it was me and the trainer. <laughs> and then I, I had one of the players I had, I don't know if you remember this uh, fellow, Don Ford was a, a player on our team. And I asked him to like take some notes and give me some advice during the game. And after about two games, he said, coach, I don't want to do this anymore. I think the players thought that he was a plant or something, you know, like, Hey, I don't want to do this coach. <laughs> and they're not going to give me any more money for it. So uh, you're on your own. So I, I asked to uh, ask Pat Riley and he said, yes. Uh, and it's really funny how they, the yes came. He said, I had to get chicks approval because <laughs> chick Hearn really was running the show. When Jerry Buss took over the team and bought the team, the, the resident, he wasn't the owner, he didn't have any money in it, but the resident guy who ran the Lakers was Chick Hearn. Hmm. And uh, you, had to, you had to get his approval. He, you had to get his approval if you wanted to change hotels. He had his favorite hotels. and If, if you didn't want to go to his hotel, he was very unhappy. You got to love it. Pat Riley, to take an assistant coaching job with the Lakers, he's to get approval from Chick Hearn. <laughs> I, I can't fathom that happening well, that's exactly what happened though and then <laughs> so Pat went on to you know have a great career good yeah. for him you know you uh, you talked about kind of why it didn't work out with the lakers in that third year but usually a championship which you got in 1980 that buys you some kind of runway uh the the common perception paul that you read about in a lot of clips is that magic johnson didn't want to play for you 
Magic Johnson got you fired. How close is that perception to the reality? Well, I think it's it's close, but I don't think it's the whole truth, Chris. Uh, it's close enough that uh, we were on a five-game winning streak, so there aren't many, you know, professional coaches who get fired on five-game winning streaks if they haven't done any, you know, thing personally wrong. And uh, we played in Salt Lake City, and uh, during the game, uh, Magic was not responding to things I was saying to him. And the last play of the game, I gave him some defensive instruction, and he totally either disregarded or didn't do. So after the game, after we went in the locker room, I asked him to come into another empty locker room to tell him how I felt. I, I gave him... The, the credit to not say it in front of his teammates. So I said to him, I said, Magic, this cannot continue. You cannot uh, disregard me uh, at crucial times in a game like you just did. And he just walked out and he apparently got a hold of Jerry Buss and said, I don't want to play here anymore. So it kind of put Buss on the line and I got fired the next day. So I guess you could say Magic Johnson got me fired. But I think that's unfair to Magic because the Lakers were unhappy anyway. You know, they were almost looking for a reason to say maybe we should uh, let Westhead go and, and do other things. Uh, they, they just weren't happy. We, we weren't winning enough, even though five-game winning streak's not bad. <laughs> so I think Magic was the tipping point, but – he, if they really wanted me, he wouldn't have been able to get me fired. So they used him to have me released. That's my opinion. Do you have a relationship with Magic now? Yeah, I mean, Magic. I see Magic, you know, different events and, and times. And uh, he actually called me uh, some months ago and invited me to, to go to Hawaii with the team. They're going to make a, a have a celebration about the the great Laker teams of the '80s. And he said, Coach. Uh, we absolutely want you to be there. And I really appreciated the phone call. And then it all got uh, canceled or delayed because of the COVID uh, situation. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, my relationship with Magic now is fine. You had bounced around in different spots in the NBA and back in college. I mean, did you have a preference of what was more enjoyable? Was just the NBA kind of a thing you aspired to? How would you view it? Yeah. Well, I, I, I would say after 20 teams and 45 years of coaching, I would say I like the teams that had good players. <laughs> it's funny. Every coach, I, I hear that a lot yeah. there, Paul. And, and the ones that, you know, you got and the, the, the closet was half empty and, you know, and all the good players just got traded or, or retired. Yeah, and that's why you got the job. You see, that, that's kind of one of the things. Once you get fired in the NBA, the next job you get, it's probably not a very good one because you're kind of damaged goods yourself. So you get second best. And then it, it, it kind of trundles the bad way. Uh, but, I, you know, I, uh, there were teams that I just uh, liked. I mean, I, I liked my Denver Nuggets team. Even in my first year when we won the last week of the season, we won our 20th game. But they were delightful guys. They tried their best to run and press like I was doing in college. Uh, you know, they, they really did. And, I, you know, I had uh, – well, I just had a, a bunch of guys that said, okay, we'll give it a try. Uh, but probably the best team I've ever – coach my system is Loyola Marymount I mean mm. when I was at LMU those players uh, Bo Kimball Hank Gathers Corey Gaines and they they responded to what I wanted and they liked it you know it wasn't like oh gosh this crazy guy wants us to run more no they kept saying give us more we, we like this we we see that running fast beats teams we see that teams get tired and crumble, you know, and they enjoyed that moment. What was a uh, young Matumbo like? Yeah, he was, he was terrific. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Uh, he made me change my my fast break. My fast break. Oh, you mean you can't run with Matumbo? I'm, I'm. Yeah, yeah. I'm well, sorry. I had to do it in a special way. But <laughs> in my system, uh, he couldn't take the ball out of bounds because you know it just was too. It's too skilled. You know, you have to learn that. And he couldn't be the what I would call my foreman to kind of trail the one and shoot twenty foot jump shots. The Kembe could not make a shot outside of five feet. Mm. You know, if everyone else left the gym, he couldn't make it outside of five feet. But I'm saying that in a critical way. But I loved Dikembe. He, I changed my break and had him run to the basket on every possession. And we would play Boston and, and, and against a, a very good Robert Parrish. And he'd go blowing by Robert Parrish at half court and get, you know, open layups. Uh, Dikembe averaged 19 points a game for me. And I think never again. Well, I got fired and he became, you know, uh, a Hall of Famer. Uh, probably his career average is under 10. Mm. Uh, but in my running system, Dikembe was terrific. You know, he, he, he'd play for my, my team because he liked to run. I, I enjoyed Dikembe. What a terrific guy. Yeah. Oh, great guy. Uh, always has been. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating Cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As you kind of progress, you took different jobs in the ABA, you went to the Japanese League. When does the idea of coaching women become something you're interested in? Like, could you have ever envisioned yourself coaching a women's team, whether it's, I mean, in the 80s or before then? 
No. Uh, to be honest, I mean, I, I, I saw one professional women's game in, in Los Angeles. Uh, um, my friend who uh, coached with me with the Lakers, Mike Tebow, brought a team in town and he, and he called me and said, uh, would you uh, like to come and uh, see, our, see our team play and I can get to see you? And I said, yeah, that's okay, Mike. I don't, I'm not really interested in going to see the game. So I said no. And then my wife said to me, we could bring our granddaughter. She was like 12 and she was an athletic kid. You know, she played softball and soccer and volleyball. She said, it would be great to take her down and let her see what, what you know, women athletes can do. So I called him back. I said, hey, Mike, I, I changed my mind. I want to go to the game. So we sat at the bench, right behind the bench, and, and I saw this game. And my granddaughter you know, had fun, and we talked to some of the players after the game. So it was a, a good family experience. So years later, when I'm out of work, I get a call, and the Phoenix Mercury calls and says, you know, uh, would you be interested in coaching the women? And I went, oh, yeah. I mean, you know. I know the women's game <laughs> and I had seen one game, <laughs> but when you're out of work, I mean, you, you, you have to, you know, the kids got to eat. So I take the job and I fly into Phoenix and Diana Taurasi meets me at the airport and we were driving to the press conference. She says, Hey coach, uh, how you doing? I said, hey, good day. Thank you. She said, I have one thing to ask you. Treat us like you treat the guys. Don't water down the drills. Don't be nice to us. You just do exactly what you have done when you had your fast break team. So I said, okay. So we we go to work. I do all the fast break stuff. Uh, we're into the season. We're like three and eight. And I, uh, let me digress for a moment. If you're mm -hmm. three and eight with a guy's team, college or pro, you're done. In fast break, you're done. Because they look at you and they say, you got us running up and down like a crazy man, men, and we're three and eight. Uh, we can go slow and we can't do much worse. <laughs> so, you, you see, you're stuck if you're a fast break coach. You really are. Because the only answer to a three eight, and eight team in uh, fast break is go faster and they're not going to they, they just resist well back to the women we were three and eight they said to me you hang in with us and we'll hang in with you and we'll get this done and sure enough the next season we win a WNBA championship so uh, the women uh, will, will follow the scheme longer than a men's team that's for sure but I won a championship with the Lakers and I won with the Phoenix Mercury. And what they had in common was I had the best players in the world. Mm. You know, I had Kareem and magic and with Phoenix, I had uh, Diana Taurasi and, and Cappy Pondexter from Chicago and Penny Taylor from Australia. So it, it comes down to that. If you have the great players and you have a good system, you can win. Could Diana Taurasi have played in an NBA game? I have no doubt. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, she, she's good enough. And, and you know, and people always say, like, uh, you know, over your experience, who, who are the five best players you'd ever uh, coach? You know, who's the best and all that? And, you know, and so I, I said, well, I never coached Michael Jordan, but he, I, I, th I still think he's the best. But, I mean, I had – I had Kareem and Magic Johnson. Uh, I had Dikembe Mutombo. I had Tracy McGrady. Uh, but uh, Diana Taurasi would have to be in my top five. She would fit that that world. She's that good. What made she, her that? What made her special? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's funny you say that because you know she really didn't fit my fast break system. Right. She 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 had okay speed. She didn't have great speed. She uh, was a willing fast break player, but I don't think it was her favorite way of going about things. She was really more in the, and I'll make this analogy, in the Tracy McGrady world. Like, you know, just let me get down there and get me the ball and I'll score. I mean, why do I have to get down there so fast? I can score anyway. Mm. Uh, 
And it's funny, I, I make that comparison because when I was with Orlando with uh, Johnny Davis as the head coach, I, I put in a system with him that if McGrady rebounded the ball defensively, he was the point guard for that play. So he would bring it and, and he'd bring it real fast and real good. Otherwise, he wasn't really interested in running fast without the ball. So I did that with Tarasi too. When she got a defensive rebound, she was the point guard for that play and she would bring it and, and do marvelous things. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, they're, they're very comparable players. Uh, but the X factor with Tarasi is she, she, she's very tough. She's feisty, you know, like she, she doesn't like anybody to get in her way. <laughs> and if she's focused on winning, you know, get out of my way. And that would include basketball officials too. She, <laughs> she has no love for officials, <laughs> but she's I the think, best. Yeah. If she's the best. I think a few men share that, uh, that sentiment as well with officials. I feel like yeah. I've uh, seen that happen more often than that. You, you also had a chance when you talk about the great players that you've worked with. I mean, you got to look at young Kevin Durant in, in Seattle yep. and Oklahoma city. I mean, did, did you see him becoming I mean, it's hard to say after one and a half years, but did you see him becoming what he eventually became? Yeah. Well, I mean, he's he could go down if he gets over this injury now. He could go down as, you know, in the top half dozen of all-time basketball players. No, I didn't see that coming. Mm. He was 18 years old when I showed up in Seattle. Uh, and, and he could score and he can do a lot of things. He... he he, he had no interest in defending anybody. Uh, and I say that because, to his credit, P.J. Carlissimo uh, tra trained him. And by that I mean we'd be in games and uh, he, Durant would get, you know, he'd have 12, 14 points in the first quarter and, and he'd miss two or three defensive assignments and P.J. would sit him down. And... Durant was not happy with that, but Pete, and so three or four minutes go by, and I say, "Hey, Peach, why don't we get uh, Kevin back in?" He said, "No, no, the heck with him. Let him let him learn." <laughs> so PJ was really hardballing Durant. Well, as what happens uh, early into the next season, PJ gets fired. Durant goes on to become, you know, the great player that he is, but. PJ really influenced the development of Kevin Durant. You know, he made him a more complete player. And, and Durant now, offense, defense, he, he, he can do both. He does do both. And one plays off the other. But I can't say that I saw Kevin Durant said, oh, my gosh, this, is, this guy is going to be, you know, a phenom. Uh, and, and, I, and the next year I was in – Oklahoma City and saw Russell Westbrook too, and I had the same feeling. I, I thought he was a good player. Uh, he, he just drove to the basket with a vicious attitude. I mean, I, yeah, I love that about him. But uh, I think Westbrook uh, is marvelous for from when he started to where he is now. I mean, he mm. he has. And the interesting thing about Westbrook, I'll say this. Uh, I saw him early on, and I, I, I went to P.J. Carlissimo and I said, you know, P.J., we're going to have a problem because Westbrook doesn't shoot outside. He drives to the basket, like, viciously, but when he gets in the league, the big guys are just going to knock him down. Well, what I misread is he went so hard to the basket that the big guys got out of his way. <laughs> There, no, no, this is the truth. The big guys in the NBA are afraid of Russell Westbrook. So when he says, ready or not, here I come, <laughs> they get the hell out of his way. So that doubled his ability right from there because he just put his head down and go to the basket and it was wide open. It, you know, it just opened up. So I didn't calculate that. When was the last time you thought about coaching? Oh, yesterday. I mean, I, <laughs> I keep uh, my my wife says you're retired. I said no, I'm not. I'm just waiting for a phone call, but uh, <laughs> uh, hasn't rang in a while. Uh, but, I, but I enjoy it. I I, I watch my grandkids play. Mm. Right, it's fine. But well, I hope I can begin to watch my grandkids again when this uh, Corona thing gets yeah. over. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Well, the book is terrific, Paul. It's called The Speed Game. You've had an incredible career. 
Uh, you can buy it on Amazon everywhere you can pick up books. Enjoyed the conversation, Paul. Thanks for joining me here on the show. My pleasure, Chris. There's a shortcut to platinum status at Shell. To saving 10 cents per gallon on every fill every day. Just fill up six times with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline and it's yours. Plus, you'll rejuvenate your engine. Get ready to level up performance, rewards, and savings. With continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors, platinum status is earned with 12 fill-ups over three months, 10-gallon minimum per fill-up at participating Shell locations. Terms apply. Visit fuelrewards.com status. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.